Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri, where we share the unchanging love of Jesus to change people's lives. I'm Eric Sintel, your host, and in this episode, I want to dive back into the early history of the church. So in our last episode about the history of the church, we focused on the founding of the church. We focused on Jesus ascending into heaven, giving the great commission to go out and baptize believers and in, in, to the ends of the earth. And we talked about how in their culture, in their context, that meant like Spain, <laughs> Iraq, maybe Afghanistan. You know, they, they weren't thinking about truly the whole globe, but rather the world as they knew and understood it at the time. And that's a, an interesting point simply because, you know, within a generation, they had practically done exactly what the Great Commission asked them to do. You know, it's a really remarkable aspect of early church history. And we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost and how that seems to really be the origin or the start of the Christian church. Um, because, you know, Jesus, you could say he founded the church, but kind of, sort of, you know, he came to reform Judaism rather than start a new movement. Um, and then when he tells his followers, go and make disciples to the ends of the earth, he then says, but first wait, <laughs> and because the Holy Spirit is coming. And so it's really when the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples that the church begins. And you see Peter preaching the gospel and masses of people converting to Christianity and confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, as the Messiah. And then we also talked about the stoning of Stephen and how the stoning of Stephen and the persecution of the early Christian church by Jews in Jerusalem caused those early first Christians to scatter throughout Israel and Judea and eventually to the ends of the earth. And, you know, I am not the biggest fan of religious persecution, uh, obviously, because, you know, I'm a 21st century what person having grown up in Western culture with a established separation of church and state. And, you know, I very much value that because, you know, as our founding fathers of the United States recognized, if the state or the government creates an official religion, well then which one and what does that mean for all the others? And say they choose Christianity because that's the majority and the dominant one. Um, well, which denomination, <laughs> which, which set of doctrines. And if you even manage to work all of that out, well, then what happens when the government changes or a different religion becomes the majority in the future? And so, you know, the founding fathers, they lived in a world, in a context in which, you know, in Europe, governments changed all the time. Monarchies or kings came and went all the time. And you would literally have a, a Catholic king who said, our religion in this country is Catholicism. And if you're a Protestant, you either better convert or you're going to face some obstacles, some persecution, you know, ranging from, you know, just legal discrimination, um, you know, maybe exclusion from opportunities to actual violence. And then that Catholic king might die or get uh, overthrown. And then a Protestant king comes in and the whole thing flips and switches. And so there's no room without separation of church and state for 
uh, to pursue religion or spirituality based on your conscience. In first century Palestine and Jerusalem, you know, in the early church's context, you know, I, I don't think that those Jews who are persecuting them were doing the right thing, of course. But looking at it through their eyes, you know, they have this Torah, this Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, but for them are their sacred scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. And throughout that, the main overarching theme is worship Yahweh alone. And if you don't worship Yahweh alone, you either better convert or you better stay out of our area or we're going to do something about it. Um, you know, there are heroes, you know, people praised in the Old Testament for committing really uh, atrocious acts of violence. And even, you know, genocide is justified or explained as, well, those people worship false gods. We don't want to leave those Canaanites, Canaanites alive or in living in this area because if they do and we interact with them, we might be tempted to worship their false gods. So let's just eradicate them. Let's push them out of this land and out of this area. And that's the historical, cultural, social context from which people like Saul are operating. Um, and so in this episode, you know, we're going to dig into Saul, um, who of course becomes Paul. And so Saul, uh, but before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about something that just jumped out at me when I was looking at uh, this study, but also looking at uh, my Bible. So in this study, Anno Domini, the first 500 years of the church from F gathering, um, we're at the point where, you know, as a result of Stephen's death and a great persecution, some Christians began to leave Jerusalem and they dispersed throughout Judea and Samaria. And in the in parentheses in the study, it references Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Um, and so if you look at that verse, you see, you know, this reference to the persecution. Um, and then underneath that, as chapter 8 goes on, and as the study goes on, we hear about Philip preaching the gospel in Samaria, and then following the Spirit's guidance, the Holy Spirit's guidance, um, encountering this Ethiopian eunuch and preaching the gospel to him as well. And this is, these are some things that never really jumped out at me as much before, um, or maybe it did and it's just been so long um, that I, don't, I forgot. <laughs> but this is really interesting, really powerful, because up to this point, We've been, you know, early Christian church has been preaching the gospel to Jews, right? Jews preaching to other Jews. Well, you might recall the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan is looked down upon and Samarians, Samaritans in general are looked down upon because they come from Samaria. And then Philip goes to Samaria to preach the gospel. You know, so in the... Um, you know, Jewish imagination of, you know, first century Judea and Palestine and Israel, the gospel salvation is for Jews. 
it's not for other groups it's not for other people and it will salvation or the messiah will arrive much sooner if we as jews are very observant of our torah and our law and this is really what the pharisees were about the pharisees um, i've heard it said were wanting all of Israel, all of the Jews, to adhere to the same level of um, purity guidelines and righteousness and law following that the priests were considered responsible for doing. And so the theory being, well, if we're all as righteous, as law following as the priests, then that's going to please God and that's going to bring forth our, the Messiah to deliver us from Rome. And that's going to bring forth our salvation um, as a people faster than if we're not extending that law following to the entire nation. There's a logic there that makes a lot of sense if you're, if you're coming out of this tradition steeped in the Hebrew scriptures. And so Samaritans are looked down upon because they're not included in God's chosen family. They're not included among those people who um, might be saved by the Messiah. And neither are the Romans, of course, and neither are other groups, Egyptians, but Samaritans are especially reviled because they used to be Jews. Um, so going back in time and in history, um, the northern kingdom of Israel was in Samaria. And then the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom and carry off those people to exile. The southern kingdom and the southern tribes in Judea and you know the line of David, they survive until the Babylonian exile some centuries later. Okay, so in order to understand the momentous quality of Philip going to Samaria, you have to understand some of this history that for you know, early Christians reading this, um, they would have recognized, holy cow, he just went to, to Samaria to preach the gospel? He just went up north where, you know, those people who are, we consider a different racial ethnic group because our, you know, uh, lines have diverged so much over the centuries. Those people who, you know, historically and traditionally worship Yahweh, not at the temple in Jerusalem like they're supposed to, but at this, you know, uh, local temple or local shrine. And some of them even worship other gods at these quote-unquote high places, these, you know, monuments and temples set up on, you know, hills and mountains and things like that. Those people, that's who he went to preach the gospel to? Are you kidding me? So this is a really big deal that, uh, and really interesting and significant to me that, you know, the Holy Spirit comes upon the earliest disciples of Jesus. And then when they begin to disperse, one of the first things that happens is Philip goes to a group of people considered to be outsiders and outcasts, considering to be disobedient to Torah and to the law, and preaches the gospel to them. And of course, many of them convert. Many of them um, believe in the good news and want to follow that and want to follow Jesus. And then similarly, you know, Philip then encounters the Ethiopian. And this is a really powerful story 
uh, as well when you start to dig into some of that early historical context. By the way, I should probably say that almost all of what I've said is not coming from <laughs> Anno Domini, um, but I've been kind of a nerd uh, for several years now listening to a ton of different podcasts about the Bible because I have a long commute, and so that's a really uh, good, easy way for me to, to learn stuff about the Bible. And you know, I've read you know, a number of different books from biblical scholars over the last several years. So a lot of what I'm saying is not in this study. If you get this study, don't be disappointed <laughs> and like wonder, where did this all come from? So in uh, Philip and the Ethiopian, we have a story where the radical inclusiveness of the gospel and of Christianity becomes so apparent, right? We just had a story of pretty strong inclusiveness because Philip is going to what you might describe or categorize as um, former Jewish people to preach the gospel of Jesus. And now maybe they can repent and maybe they can become part of the family of God again. But now he's going, he encounters this Ethiopian eunuch, right? So he's Ethiopian. Let's assume that he's black. He's very dark skinned, right? So there's a, a little bit of a racial ethnic difference there, you know? And of course, modern biology tells us that race isn't just skin deep. Race literally comes down to like one or two genes that determine how much melanin your skin has, and why do you have, we have these different genes because we all used to be black and then as we migrated across the globe, lighter skin absorbs vitamin D from sunlight better. And so people living up in Norway and, you know, in more northern climates, you know, needed lighter skin and that developed over time. So there is nonetheless this skin deep, skin color difference that Philip just totally ignores and looks past. So that's really cool in terms of its inclusivity. But even more interesting is the fact that he's a eunuch, right? And so in the ancient world, you know, uh, royal officials would often be eunuchs. Um, scriptures actually talk about eunuchs in a couple different places. Um, some, you know, they reference uh, people who are made eunuchs and people who are eunuchs from birth. And so even in, you know, first century uh, New Testament letters of Paul, we see these references and we see some understanding of what we today would call non-binary gender. <laughs> because this eunuch, you know, if there are some people who are eunuchs from birth, okay, well then something's different about them, either physically or genetically or something and they're obviously different different enough to have a description and a category to uh, describe them and to identify them and then there are those who are made eunuchs right so you know if you're a king this is really crazy but if you're a king and you want to have some help around the the palace but you don't want to worry about the help um, messing with your wife or your harem of wives um, then you might have them castrated at some point. So these are people who are made into eunuchs. Okay, so however you look at it, a eunuch from birth, made into a eunuch, a eunuch is does not clearly or cleanly fit into the category of male or female. 
So we just had Philip going to Samaria and crossing racial, ethnic, and religious and cultural boundaries to preach the gospel and to include more than just the Jews into the gospel, into Christianity. And then he encounters someone who doesn't fit typical gender or physical um, characteristics. I mean, you want to set gender aside, the guy, the poor guy has been mutilated, right? So there's some aspect of disability here as well. There's some aspect of just being just plain old different. And yet he is included in the gospel. He's included in the family of God. And no sooner do we then go from Philip than to we have the conversion of Saul. So we've included, you know, these religious, ethnic, cultural outsiders, the Samaritans. We've included these racial, geographic, and uh, gender or physical ability different uh, group of the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, and now we're also going to include but people who are different because they choose to do things. Saul chooses to persecute the early Christians. He's at the stoning of Stephen, the, the first martyr of the Christian church, and he gives his approval to it. He's watching on saying, yeah, do that, go for it. And then Saul is struck blind on the road to Damascus. And he has this, this vision, this spiritual experience you know, so as the study says, you know, Saul's on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. And then Jesus meets him along the way. As a heavenly, heavenly light shone on Saul, he fell to the ground and heard Jesus ask him, Why are you persecuting me? And Saul could only respond with, Who are you, Lord? Okay, so someone who is choosing to commit these acts, choosing to do these things, is nonetheless able to be included in the family of God. He's struck blind. He has this, this uh, spiritual encounter and experience with Jesus. And then from there, um, you know, for three days he's blind, and God sends uh, Ananias to help him. And, you know, Ananias is understandably very cautious. He's heard of this guy. He knows that he's bad news, but he follows God. Uh, God's guidance and will anyway. And then eventually Saul regains his sight. Now, this is something I've always pondered or been fascinated by. You know, can you imagine for three days just sitting there <laughs> blind, unable to see, dependent on other people to bring you meals, to bring you water, to, you know, help you with whatever you could or would need help with? Um, talk about three days of extreme dependence, humility, humbling, and a lot of contemplation, I'm sure, of what just happened to me and what does it mean? I had this spiritual, you know, I imagine Saul thinking for three days, <laughs> I just had this insane, crazy spiritual experience that I know happened. My subject subjective experience of it is completely verifiable. Like, I know it happened. I didn't imagine it. I didn't make it up. This happened to me. And if this happened to me, then what does that mean? Well, if this happened to me, it means Jesus is real. Jesus 
really was and is the Messiah. And if Jesus is the Messiah, well, then everything I thought I knew about Torah and the Hebrew scriptures and Judaism has just been completely flipped on its head, completely turned upside down. Okay, so then after uh, Paul regains his sight, he begins preaching the gospel in Damascus until the local Jews there plot and conspire to kill him, much like they um, collaborated with the pagan authorities and rulers in Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate and the Romans, to kill Jesus. So we see this strong parallel here. Um, then they get Paul out of Damascus. He goes down to Jerusalem. The early, you know, the first disciples are kind of leery of him. They Like Ananias, they've heard of him too. And they are um, concerned that he might not really be a disciple, but rather maybe a spy or someone sent to infiltrate them and betray them at an opportune time. So it takes Barnabas vouching for him to get him you know, in the door. And, and then from there, Paul begins preaching the gospel in Jerusalem just as fearlessly as he did in Damascus. And uh, Acts tells us that he specifically was trying to preach to Grecian Jews or Hellenized Jews. So, you know, Paul is a Roman citizen. He's highly educated. Um, he is a man of the world in the sense that he is very familiar with his cultural surroundings. And this is a Greek-influenced culture because centuries earlier, Alexander the Great had taken over the whole area and spread Greek culture and Greek ideas and thoughts throughout the area to such an extent that Jews created the Septuagint, a um, Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures so that your everyday average person could read it. It's, you know, analogous to um, in later church history, translating the Latin Bible into English so that or or German so that your everyday person who's not a priest or scholar educated in Latin can still read the scriptures. So, <clears throat> Um, Paul is trying to connect with these people that he probably just, you know, some of them are probably his friends and they get enraged by his preaching of the gospel. And so this is really interesting. Um, when the brothers, the disciples learned of the plot among the Grecian Jews to kill Paul, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Um, Caesarea was a port city. Um, it was actually a pretty new city named after Caesar. And uh, they took him to Caesarea, put him on a boat, and got him out of town, sent him back home to his hometown of Tarsus. And then in Acts uh, chapter 9, verse 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is really interesting that um, the apostles apparently didn't want Paul stirring up trouble. <laughs> they didn't want another fresh round of persecution like they experienced before. Um, and so they got him out of the way, you know, and you could view this as concern for his life. You could view this as kind of a rebuff, like, hey, get, you're stirring up trouble and we've had enough. Get out of here. Um, but the interesting thing is you know, besides all those dynamics, you know, I, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall 
for those conversations with Paul and Peter, et cetera. Um, besides that, it's really interesting that having this time of peace and stability did enable the church to grow and prosper. And there might be a lesson there, you know, um, change is the only constant, <laughs> but maybe sometimes we have to slow down change a little bit to allow things to stabilize and allow things to, you know, the changes that you have happened to mature and to result in that growth. Um, it's almost like, you know, work, maybe a good analogy would be exercise or working out. You know, you maybe work out really intensely, lift a lot of weights for like six weeks, and then you take two weeks where you don't work out as much. And those two weeks are actually when you get more of your muscle growth because your muscles have that rest period to recover and recuperate. Um, so after they get Paul out of town, in chapter 10 of Acts, we have one of the most significant turning points in early church history where um, Cornelius, this Roman pagan, calls for Peter. So up until this point in early church history, and I'm quoting uh, this study, Anno Domini, up until this point in early church history, the gospel had mainly been preached to Jews. In Acts 10, God sent Peter to a man named Cornelius, who was a Gentile centurion, or a, a Roman officer, an officer in the Roman army. Peter shared the good news of Christ with Cornelius and his family, and they believed and were baptized. In this moment, the gospel was intentionally preached to Gentiles for the first time. I'm not sure about that, because we just had this uh, conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch, um, maybe the difference is that, you know, the spirit led Philip down this path and he just happened to run into the eunuch. Um, whereas in this case, you know, Peter had to really think, do I go into a Gentile's home? That's looked down upon. That's, you know, not what your good, respectable Jews are supposed to do. And so it, perhaps you could argue this was a more intentional effort and a more intentional decision to preach to Gentiles. And here's the most important part, though, is once Cornelius and his family are baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And this is such an important moment for the early Christian church. You know, for us today, um, and I don't mean this in any kind of anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish way at all, but for us today... You know, we have a little bit of a hard time, don't we, of computing how you could be Jewish and believe in Jesus? Like, you know, isn't Judaism a different religion? You know, don't they believe Jesus is a prophet but not the Son of God? Um, you know, so how, so could you be Jewish and Christian or Jewish and believe in Jesus? Like, I, I don't know how that would work. Um, well, for them, in first century Christianity, it was exactly the opposite. Well, can you not be Jewish and follow Jesus? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't compute with me. Well, evidently you can because the Holy Spirit is coming upon these Gentiles. So God himself, in sending his spirit to Cornelius and his family, um, is expanding the family of God, expanding the gospel and the good news not just from for Jews, but to the whole world. And this was such a significant turning point for the early Christian church. 
You know, in Acts chapter 11, we read, The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God, so the gospel. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Okay, um, circumcision was a really big deal, obviously. Um, it was a big deal as a marker of being Jewish and of belonging to God. Um, it's a marker of ritual purity, you know, not that you're necessarily better than someone else, but that you have done this thing to help you become um, pure enough or clean enough in the sense of just prepared preparation to uh, enter the temple and worship Yahweh. You know, you wouldn't, you know, we don't go to church. Most of us don't feel comfortable going to church, not um, trying to wear our Sunday best, you know, or looking unpresentable in our opinion or our eyes. And, you know, just a brief aside, but, you know, God obviously doesn't care. <laughs> and, and, you know, he doesn't care how we dress, what we look like. And, you know, you see that throughout the radical inclusivity of the New Testament and the Gospels and Jesus' ministry, and now the Acts of the Apostles and the early Christian church's history. Um, and yet, we have these social constructs, these cultural uh, norms that, you know, lead us to maybe be very uncomfortable if we're going to go into certain places, right? So that's sort of what I think is going on here, is that the circumcised believers, so these Jewish Christian converts, are criticizing Peter. You went into an uncircumcised man's home. Are you kidding me? Um, that is so beyond the pale. That is so just wrong <laughs> from from their social cultural um, norms. So then Peter explained to them his vision in which God revealed to him that it was okay to eat non-kosher food items that you know, purity is not what you put into your body, but what comes out of it. Um, and he explains this vision. He explains going to meet Cornelius and preaching to them and then witnessing the Holy Spirit come upon them. So in Acts 11, cha uh, chapter 11, verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So this is such an important turning point, not just because God makes it clear that he loves and cares for and offers eternal life for Gentiles as well as Jews, but also the early church figured it out. <laughs> the early church scratching their heads. Well, can you be Gentile and follow Jesus? I don't know. Maybe you need to get circumcised and maybe you need to follow uh, dietary laws and maybe you need to follow other cultural and social norms and then you can follow Jesus and through this vision Peter has and through this encounter with Cornelius and the Holy Spirit coming upon them God makes it clear no that's not the case at all and then you know give credit to Peter and to the early disciples they figured it out they took you know they pay, observed what was happening and said, well, apparently you can be Gentile and be Christian. Apparently you can not do all these Jewish things and be a follower of Jesus because they're doing it. The Holy Spirit's upon them. Okay, so the study Anno Domini, 
um, kind of pauses in its history and gives a couple days in the study to review and apply some of these ideas. And so in uh, this review section, they write, the Holy Spirit is everything to the church. He caused the growth and spread of the early church that we read about this week. He filled the disciples as they boldly proclaimed Jesus as the Savior. He inspires men, women, and children to give their lives to follow Christ. He opens our eyes and ears to the gospel. He transforms our hearts. He led the way as the early church moved into all regions. And so this is something that I wanted to read out loud and quote from because uh, to me it connects directly to our practice as believers today. We see in the early history of the church and we see in the book of Acts the central role of the Holy Spirit. And we believe as Christians that the Holy Spirit dwells within us upon our repentance and uh, embrace of Jesus. But in my experience, um, in my, and keep in mind, my experience goes from you know, growing up, raised in a Baptist context, to now you know, attending a Methodist church for the last gosh, time flies, you know, 10, 12, 15 years, and just being kind of attuned to general Christian culture and especially evangelical subculture. Um, So that's my experience from which I'm saying this. In my experience, we tend to really, really de-emphasize and devalue the Holy Spirit. And in its place, we elevate the Holy Bible. You know, I think it's fair to say that for many Christians in America today, actually for many decades, the Holy Trinity consists of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Bible, preferably the King James Version, right? And and so where's the Holy Spirit there? Well, I mean, I guess if you ask people, uh, gave them a doctrine quiz, they would still say the Holy Spirit was part of the Trinity, but in the way we emphasize the Holy Bible and de-emphasize the Holy Spirit, and the way we kind of talk and navigate our lives and our faiths, we, I think, belie our belief or we, um, we reveal the truth of what we really think and what we really believe when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Because, see, how do you know if it's the Holy Spirit or if it's just you? How do you know if the Holy Spirit is telling you to take that new job or if it just happens to be a job you really would like to have anyway? Uh, And then you're kind of rationalizing it to yourself, baptizing it, quote unquote, um, to say this is why you should take it when really you just want to. You know, how do you, I've heard that said so many times in different contexts and situations. Well, you know, I. I think the Spirit is leading me to fill in the blank, or I think the Spirit is guiding us to fill in the blank. And I've sometimes thought, man, you could use that to justify a lot of things you want to do or you think that a group should do. And so it gets really, really tricky to discern what is the Holy Spirit, what is me, what is the Holy Spirit versus what is maybe outside influence from others or outside influence from quote unquote the world. Um, And so it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort to discern what is the Holy Spirit and what is not. And it's much more, it's 
seductive in its apparent simplicity to instead point to the Holy Scriptures and say, well, it says right here, do this, don't do that. Um, and the reality is that when we try to turn the Bible into a manual or an instruction manual or a rule book, we often end up taking those verses out of their context and applying them in ways that they were not meant to be understood or applied. And we often end up doing a lot of harm in the process, all the while elevating these holy scriptures to a place in the Trinity. Um, because we're pointing to that and saying, this is why we do or don't do that or say or don't say that or believe this or don't believe that. Um, and we ignore any effort the Holy Spirit might be making to guide us to a different interpretation or application. And so this is this centrality of the Holy Spirit in the early church, I think is, first of all, just really interesting. But second, a good reminder for us that the early Jews were not looking at their scriptures. I'm sorry, the early Christian church, the first disciples who were Jews, were not looking at the experience around them and observing the spiritual transformation in themselves and others resulting from the Holy Spirit and then saying, well, yeah, but all that could just be our feelings and our emotions and, you know, who really knows, you know, how trustworthy that, trustworthy that is. Instead, we're just going to do what Torah says to do and we're not going to include these Gentiles unless they follow all these Jewish customs and laws. They didn't do that, right? And so we have an example in our own history, in our own sacred scriptures, of how and why we ought to try to discern the Holy Spirit and be sensitive to it and how it's guiding us and how we interpret and understand our own tradition, our own scriptures, our own theology, and then apply those things to our faiths and our lives and our relationships with God in our context and in our time and place. To put a really fine point on it um, with a, a pretty strong example, you know, the Bible was used to justify slavery. You know, American slaveholders used the Bible and pointed to certain verses and said, look, it says right here, slaves obey your masters. You know, it says right here, you know, slaves, you know, work unto your masters as you work unto the Lord. Um, you know, right here, it says that you've got to, you know, follow this. And, oh, you know, by the way, you know, Paul ordered this, you know, slave to or return this escaped slave back to his owner. So don't run away. You know, you're supposed to be a slave and you're supposed to stay here and you're supposed to work joyfully as though you're working for the Lord. Um, that was, you know, they used the Bible in a an abusive way, a spiritually and physically abusive way to justify what this inhumane, unjustifiable um, institution of slavery. Other Christians, the abolitionists, use the same Bible to argue for the abolition of slavery. Um, and, you know, they maybe pointed to Exodus and uh, Yahweh, freeing the Israelite slaves, delivering them from bondage in Egypt. 
you know, as recently as the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, often compared um, himself to Moses and uh, the civil rights movement to the story of Exodus and the Israelites being delivered by, uh, from bondage by God. So you have the same Bible interpreted differently by different Christians and used to justify different positions. Who's right and who's wrong? You know, it's easy to be cynical and say, well, those slaveholding, slave-owning Christians were not sincere in how they interpreted and applied Scripture. But, you know, if you look at the words on the page, Paul doesn't leave much ambiguity or wiggle room there, you know? I mean, Paul says pretty clearly, slaves obey your masters. Um, there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of uh, reinterpretation of that that one needs to do to conclude that, well, gosh, like, apparently slavery is okay. Um, yeah, God didn't like it when the Egyptians kept the Israelites slave because that's, they're ch God's chosen people. Um, and, you know, it says it in scriptures that there is chosen people. So he didn't like that. He delivered them. But, you know, then he also um, gave them some rules and regulations for who they could keep as a slave, who they could not keep as a slave. You know, at certain points in the Old Testament, you can't have any slaves at all. At other points, it's, well, you can have non-Israelite slaves. And then later, it's like, well, you might be, you can have Israelite slaves, but you have to let them go after, after seven years, you know, after they've worked off their debt or what have you. Um, and oh, by the way, you know, there's all of these slaves are, you know, uh, this institution of slavery in the ancient Near East is very different from the institution of slavery in uh, the United States um, during, you know, the 16, 17, 1800s. So there's, you know, so much complexity there in terms of the historical, social, cultural context. But if you're a slave owning um, Southerner in the United States in, say, 1855, <laughs> It's not hard, and you don't have to reinterpret anything to just look at the words on the page and say, well, obviously, this is clear as day. It's actually harder, I think, to, as an abolitionist in 1855, to look at the Bible and say, well, I know it says it right there, but I think we have to reinterpret Paul in his ancient context, or we have to, you know... Um, give Paul some credit. Maybe if he had lived longer, he would have gotten to a stronger condemnation of slavery. Um, maybe, you know, he's trying to accommodate to the culture of his time. Um, oh, and by the way, you know, half these letters that we attribute to Paul, we don't know for sure if he actually wrote them or someone else wrote them, or he wrote them with four or five other co-authors who are not named because they weren't famous and no one cared who they were. <laughs> um, but, oh, that's, you know, modern biblical scholarship from, you know, more recent years, not in anything that would have been available to abolitionists in the 1800s. So you can see, you know, how from our context, from our point of view, of course the Bible does not endorse slavery. Of course we have to interpret Paul in his context to make sense of those verses. And of course we have to maybe give more weight, even if we don't want to admit it, give more weight to the Exodus story and the, the delivering of slavery and this clear message or what seems to be a clear message that God doesn't like slavery. Um, but for, you know, those slave-owning and abolitionist Christians, they're having to discern what is what in this book reflects God as he truly is and what 
reflects God as this ancient Near Eastern people understood him in their time and place, and what maybe is the best way to apply these scriptures to our lives, and what is not the best way. Well, how do you do that? You do that, I think, in part through deep theological convictions about who God is, and you do that in part through being open to the possibility that the Holy Spirit's going to guide you and that feeling of dis- of uneasiness as you read Paul saying, slaves obey your masters, that feeling of uneasiness, maybe that's the Holy Spirit nudging you. Like, yeah, you need to, you know, remember who God is as you read this and you need to remember the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity, not the Holy Bible. And I'm trying to tell you, <laughs> think about this differently than what the words on the page says. Don't just point to the words on the page and say, well, this is what we're going to follow because this gives us this comfort of certainty, this comfort of knowing exactly what to do, what exactly what the rules are. Instead, embrace the messiness and the difficulty and honestly, the discipleship and the journey of being willing to let the Holy Spirit continue to do its work in you, in us, not just limiting its work to the apostles in the book of Acts. Well, I didn't mean to go on a sermon there about the Holy Spirit, um, but I did. Sorry, not sorry. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and uh, thank you, as always, for listening. Please tell people about the podcast, particularly anyone that you think would find this interesting, encouraging, helpful. Thank you so much. God bless.